Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 6. That passage which was just read will be our text this morning, Luke 6, 37 through 48. And the title this morning is, Why Call Me Lord? Why Call Me Lord? As we come to the end of this message from Jesus, we have a series of shorter teachings, parables, and illustrations. Everything that's recorded in this text is also found in Matthew's Gospel. Some of it is found in Matthew 7, and then other parts of it are in other areas of that Gospel account. Now Jesus gave these last few instructions on this occasion, and then He challenged His hearers to obey. Obey. This morning we're going to look at these teachings, parables, illustrations found in this text, but I want our focus to be on this issue of obedience. Our title is taken from the words of Jesus down there in verse 46, where Jesus said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? God wants us to hear His word, receive it in faith, and then walk in obedience to Him. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank You. For your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are the head of the church, that we follow you. Lord, I pray that we would receive your word this morning, that we would not content ourselves with simply hearing your word, that we would recognize it as from you, as authoritative, and then humbly submit ourselves to you and walk in obedience. Do a work in our hearts this morning, we pray, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we're going to look at this issue of Christian judgment in verses 37 and 38. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down and shaken together. And running over, shall men give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. Verse 37 begins with those two words, judge not, judge not. And it may very well be that this verse, and particularly these first two words, have overtaken John 3.16 as the most well-known passage of Scripture in America. People might not know the reference, like they know John 3.16, but they know that these words are in the Bible, judge not. Now, some people use these words from Jesus as if they prohibit Christians from judging or exercising discernment or speaking against sin on any level. Now, of course, when we look at Scripture as a whole, we know that is not true. A great example that illustrates this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you're familiar with that passage, you know the church in Corinth, they were not dealing with a very public and heinous sin that was in their midst, and they actually thought that they were doing a good thing by not dealing with this sin. And Paul spoke very firmly and directly on this issue. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 5 and 6, Paul wrote, Deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And then further on in that passage, in verses 11 through 13, Paul wrote, I have written unto you not to keep company, If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a rowler, 
or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one do not eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not judge, don't, do not ye judge them which are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And there are many churches today that, like the church in Corinth, glory in not dealing with sin in the church. And like the church at Corinth, they think they're doing a good thing by not dealing with sin in the local church body, but it's not a good thing. It's the opposite of a good thing. We must not twist the words of Jesus to make an excuse for sin, for your sin, for the sin of someone else. Now, some people take these words from Jesus, judge not. And I've heard people say, well, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. It's always puzzled me how that is a comforting statement to anyone. In an ultimate sense, it is true. God is our judge. And on the day of judgment, no sin will be overlooked. No mercy will be shown. If you think men are harsh in their judgments, imagine what it will be like to stand before the perfectly holy God, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, to stand before that God and give an account of your life. Apart from Jesus Christ, there will be no hope in the day of judgment. That's not what this verse is talking about. People often misuse and abuse this passage. But what is, what is Jesus referring to in this verse? It ties in with what came before it in this passage. Jesus was telling His disciples how they are supposed to live, what was expected of them as His disciples. In verse 31, He says, As you would that men should do to you, do you also to them likewise. In verse 35, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. In verse 36, Be ye therefore merciful. And now in verses 37 and 38, we see that Jesus instructed His disciples to not judge or condemn and to have a forgiving and giving disposition. This is the same principle that's laid out there in verse 32. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Here's a question for us. How often do we need mercy from others? Very often. Then show the mercy that you would like to receive from them. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. It's a two-way street. And the principle that's laid out here is that if we're merciful to others, we can better expect them to be merciful to us. Now where people often go wrong here is they say, well then I better not talk about any sin. Because it's not my place to judge someone else. And that's correct. It's not your place to judge someone else. That's God's place. And all sinners are already under God's condemnation. Romans 5, 18. When we warn against sin, we are not judging that person. We are warning that this is the judgment that God has already pronounced. As a sinner apart from the grace of God, I am under that same judgment for sin. The message of the gospel is flee from the wrath to come. Flee from God's judgment against sin to God's mercy. God's provision which is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when we speak against sin, we're in no way violating the principles that Jesus laid down for His disciples in this passage. In fact, we're fulfilling it. Now, these verses also talk about having a forgiving and giving disposition. 
If we forgive when we have suffered wrong or been injured by others, then we can better expect others to forgive us when we have wronged them. And again, Jesus is laying out principles, not absolute rules. You may strive to always forgive people, and you should. But that does not mean that you will always be forgiven by others. Now, Generally, it's true. Again, it's a principle, but it's not a rule. But even if you do not receive the forgiveness that you show to others, you still benefit by following this principle that Jesus gave to His disciples. You benefit because, one, you're walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. And two, you'll be free from that unforgiving spirit, free from bitterness. This is a good thing. Walk in obedience. These principles laid out by Jesus. And Jesus called His disciples to generosity. Give, and it shall be given unto you. If we're generous toward others, again, we can better expect others to be generous toward us. And like, we're, like forgiving, we're to do this out of obedience to God and for His glory. And that would be enough. But God has also ordained this principle of sowing and reaping that we see in all areas of His creation. There's this general principle that you can expect to receive as you give. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're called to be generous to others as you would desire others to be generous toward you. The end of verse 38 says, For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Once again, it's the same principle repeated in slightly different language. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Judge not, you shall not be judged. Condemn not, you shall not be condemned. Forgive, you shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. And God has given us these principles for our benefit in guarding against sin and encouraging us in good works. A pastor wrote years ago, Providence does not always go by this rule because the full and exact retributions are reserved for another world. Yet ordinarily, it observes a proportion sufficient to deter us from all acts of rigor and to encourage us in all good works. These are principles laid out by the Lord to help guard against sin and to encourage us in good works. Now after this exhortation on Christian judgment, there is a series of three parables or illustrations. And the first is the parable of the blind that we find in verse 39. There we read, And he, Jesus, spake a parable unto them, Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? In this context, it's not immediately clear who Jesus is referring to, but the same parable was used by Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 14, and there it is abundantly clear that He was talking about the Pharisees. Now let's look at this parable itself. Can the blind lead the blind? Well, you can try, but it's dangerous. If you are blind and you are relying on a blind leader, you are liable to follow them as they fall. And that's what Jesus says. Both shall fall into the ditch. Now Jesus was not commenting on physical blindness. He was illustrating the danger of following spiritually blind leaders. The Pharisees were spiritually blind. And if blind, could they be relied upon to lead the people into the light? No, of course not. They will lead people to stumble in all the same areas where they had stumbled. And where did they stumble? Ultimately, in a rejection of Jesus Christ. They depended 
And they led the people to depend on an outward morality. A morality that was seen in their works, measured against the works of others. And as we saw last week, they can often appear to us as righteousness. We like to mistakenly identify our good works as a form of righteousness that pleases God. But our best morality is nothing more than the righteousness of sinners, and it's no good in God's eyes. Now the Pharisees are no longer an organized religious group. They're long gone. But the world is still full of blind leaders. Beware of following the blind, lest you fall where they fall. When we use the opinions, the standards, the customs, the traditions of this world as our guide, we are following the blind. Turn from such folly, lest you meet the same end to which this world is destined. We know where the world is headed. Second Peter tells us it's reserved unto destruction by fire. It's headed towards destruction. Turn from it. When I was studying this, I thought of the salvation testimony of Justin Martyr, who was a prominent Christian and apologist in the second century. And when he was a young man, before he was saved, he was a student of philosophy. And he traveled around the Mediterranean world, visiting different schools of philosophy. But he was never satisfied with what he learned. And in the providential grace of God, one day he was walking along the seashore, and he met an old man and had a conversation with him. And after hearing his, old, his story, the old man said to Justin, he said, the truth that you want to know about this world, about creation, about God, about yourself. It's found in Scripture and not in the schools of philosophers. And by the grace of God, young Justin, he listened to this old man. He went to the Word of God. He was convinced of the truth of Scripture. He was converted. And he went on to be used by God in service to the church. He stopped following the blind because someone who could see told him about the light. Now, we don't know the name of that old man. As far as we know, Justin Martyr never spoke to him again. All that this old man did was he talked to a burdened young man and pointed him to the light which he knew. May God help us to be faithful with the spiritual light that's been given to us. Verse 40, another illustration where Jesus says, You will not be above your master. There in verse 40, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Now, Jesus used very similar language in Matthew 10, verse 24. And in that context, it's clear that Jesus was talking about himself and his disciples. Disciples of Jesus Christ could not expect to receive better treatment in this world than Jesus himself received. But in our text, it seems to tie in with verse 39. A disciple will not rise above the level of his master. If you are following the spiritually dead, you will never be led to life. If you learn all you can from your master, you will only attain to the level of your master. And if your master is blind, the best you can do is be blind. And so this illustrates the truth that's taught in verse 39. And this is also an excellent reminder for Christians when applied to leaders in the church and to Christianity as a whole. You know, sometimes we get very attached to different people. Pastors, or teachers, or writers, 
other believers who have discipled us and made an investment in our lives. And that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with benefiting from other Christians in our time, those who are in our time or those who have come before us. But there's always a danger of making an idol out of even a good thing. If we follow some other person alone, we'll be prone to all the same faults, blind spots, and weaknesses that they are prone to. must always remember, the church has one head, one master, one ruler, one ultimate authority, and that is Jesus Christ. We benefit from fellow pilgrims as they walk with us and before us. In certain contexts, we're to submit to the authority of other believers. We're called to respect and to submit to spiritual authority, which God has ordained. But we follow Christ. We follow Christ. Jesus Christ is who we strive to follow. And if we follow Him, we will not be led astray. We will not stumble and fall. Christ is our leader. Next, Jesus gives the parable or example of the moat and plank. Verses 41 and 42. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceive not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. In these verses, Jesus taught his disciples that there must be humility and careful self-examination and correction before we try to rebuke or reform others. First, we're warned to be mindful of our own faults before we try to correct others. In verse 41, Jesus gives this exaggerated, almost comical example of someone who is aware of a moat, a tiny little speck in his brother's eye, but is unaware of the beam that's in his own eye. And the word here for beam, it indicates a support beam that would be used to hold up uh, the roof of a structure. And so the image here is of a man walking along with this huge piece of lumber in his own eye. But he sees and is concerned about the speck in the eye of his brother. And Jesus asked, Why do you behold the mote in his eye and not perceive the beam in your own eye? Why are you concerned with your brother's relatively small problem when you have the major one yourself? Examine yourself carefully and recognize your own faults and your own needs before you try to correct your brother. Next, we're reminded that we are not fit to help others if we have the same or even worse problem. Jesus asked, how can you say to your brother, let me help you, when you have an even worse problem? Now, Jesus used very strong language here. He said, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. The Greek word for hypocrite refers to an actor who is playing the part of someone else. So Jesus says, you play actor. You pretender. You're not genuine. You're not authentic. You're a fake, a hypocrite. We should not try to correct a problem in someone else until we have corrected it in our own life first. And finally, if we want to help others, we must avail ourselves of the same help. What did Jesus say? Take the beam out of your own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull the moat, to pull out the moat that is in thy brother's eye. Take the beam out of your own eye first. Now, once again, a lot of people will go to a passage like this, and they 
Use it to put off the need to correct sin. Or they will use it to deflect correction that they receive from a brother or sister in Christ. They might say, well, you know, I know you've done this sin or that sin in your past. Uh, I know some of the problems that you have. Don't you try to take the moat out of my eye when you have a beam in your own. But is that what Jesus was saying here? Was Jesus teaching that because we're all sinners, we cannot help correct each other? No, absolutely not. Was Jesus teaching that we should not be concerned about our brother? No, absolutely not. Jesus was teaching, don't be a hypocrite. Don't try to hold others to a standard that you yourself don't hold. And once again, we need to be very careful that we don't twist the words of Jesus to excuse our sin or to excuse our apathy or to silence a brother or sister in Christ who is trying to help us. Sometimes we need a brother or sister in Christ who is willing to come up to us and help us see an area where we were wrong and where we need correction. I experienced that this week. This past week I said something that violated the principles that I stood up here and preached about last week. And I said it thoughtlessly, and I did not think about it again. Until a brother came to me and he said, I don't know if this is what you meant, but this is what it sounded like. I think it was wrong. And he was right. That was what I meant, and it was wrong. And you know, thinking about it, I thought, what is wrong with me? Why did I say that? I know better. I preached about it last week. And yet I still did it. And it took a brother who was willing to come and talk to me for me to see it and to repent of it. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to be involved in a church body. We need other believers around us who are involved in our lives, who can help us see these areas where we might have a blind spot. We might have been hardened to see these areas where we need correction to be able to correct them. That's a good thing. Do not twist the words of Jesus to dampen that sort of help that we can receive from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Next, Jesus taught that the true nature of a person is known by the fruit that their lives produce. Starting in verse 43. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Once again, we see the principle of sowing and reaping that God has ordained in this world, both in the natural and in the spiritual realm. In verse 43, Jesus used an example from the natural world. A good tree does not produce corrupt fruit. And a corrupt tree does not produce good fruit. And Jesus pointed out that this is how we judge trees. At the beginning of verse 44, Jesus says, Every tree is known by his own fruit. And what does Jesus mean? Verse 44 continues this natural illustration. Trees are known by their fruit. Men do not go to a thorn tree for figs or to a bramble to gather grapes. 
We know that it's not the nature of these plants to produce these fruits. We know the trees by the fruits they produce. And then Jesus took this illustration from nature and he made a spiritual application. In verse 45, Jesus indicates that this principle is true of men as well. Good men, out of the good that is in their hearts, produce good. Evil men, out of the evil that is in their hearts, produce evil. This is true as an overarching principle. An overarching principle. Good men will, as a rule, produce good. And evil men will, as a rule, produce evil. Now, as we saw last week, sometimes evil men can appear to do good. And as we know from personal experience, though saved and redeemed by the grace of God, sometimes we produce evil. But the trajectory of an evil man is only to evil. And the trajectory of a good man, by the grace of God, is toward good. Now this is an important principle because we have a problem when it comes to evaluating others. We cannot see someone else's heart. I can't see what's in your heart. You cannot see what is in my heart. Well, how then do we recognize a good man, a man that's been transformed by the grace of God, and an evil man, someone who's still in his natural state, unregenerate, dead in sin? We can only evaluate them by their fruit. What do their lives produce? It's a principle that helps us to do that. And this principle is also true in daily Christian living. It's very practical. The end of verse 45 has been especially convicting to me this week. There at the end of verse 45. For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. What is in our hearts will come out of our mouths. What we fill our hearts with will come out in our lives. Now practically, as believers, we need to ask ourselves, what am I storing up in my heart? What am I treasuring in my heart? If I'm filling my heart with the things of this world, whether that's in music or in media, in entertainment, in the news, in what I read, whatever it is, if I'm filling myself with the world, it's worldly things that are going to come out. If I'm filling my heart and mind with good things, with God-honoring things, godly music, good books, the Word of God, then what's going to come out of my life will be God-honoring. Remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? A very practical question. How can a young man cleanse his way? And what's the answer? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. And then this. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. What am I treasuring in my heart? What am I storing up in my heart? Am I storing up the things of this world and it's the world that's going to come out? Or am I storing up the things of God? The good things is what will come out. We spent a lot of time talking about these things that Jesus instructed his disciples to do, not only in this sermon, but in the three previous sermons as well as we've gone through this message that Jesus delivered beginning in Luke 6, verse 20. And now we reach the end of this message from Jesus, and we see that he pressed home this issue of obedience. Knowledge alone is worthless, it's no good. All the knowledge in the world does us no good if we will not obey. 
You can hear all this instruction from Jesus. And you can nod your head and say, yes, that's true, that's good. You can call Jesus Lord. But it's worthless if you will not obey what He says. At the end of this message, Jesus taught His disciples, if you call Me Lord, do as I say. Beginning in verse 46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me, and heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house, and digged deep, and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, and the stream beat vehemently upon the house, and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that, without a foundation, built a house upon the earth, against, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. To call Jesus Lord, Lord, is a high confession. These words indicate supreme authority. To call Jesus Lord is to acknowledge His authority over you, to acknowledge that He has the right to command you as He wills, and that you are responsible to obey Him. It's a good thing to call Jesus Lord. But then Jesus continued, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Now this is strange indeed. Why acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord if you will not do what He says? The beautiful confession of Lord, Lord, is worthless if it is not followed with actual submission and obedience to Jesus Christ. And Jesus went on to to illustrate the difference between those who heard His words and obeyed Him, and those who heard His words but did not obey. The last two verses describe two men who each built a house. And when the houses were built from the outside, they would have been indistinguishable. What separated these two houses, the difference between them, was in their foundations. One man dug down deep, and he laid his foundation on a rock. The other man didn't bother with the foundation. He just built his house. And the difference between these two houses was shown when a storm came. The storm could not shake the house that was built upon the rock. But the house that had no foundation immediately fell. It could not stand in the storm. Now remember who Jesus is talking to. He's delivering this sermon, and there's a large multitude of people there. This great multitude. Crowds of people had come to hear Him out of Judea and Jerusalem and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. There was a large group of disciples who were there, people who considered themselves committed followers of Jesus. And then there were the twelve apostles who had just been called by Jesus before he began the sermon. And Jesus knew what the future held. Jesus knew he was headed to the cross. Jesus knew that there was a storm approaching that would shake the faith of the people who were present in that multitude. And Jesus knew that the majority of that crowd, who gladly called him Lord, Lord, would immediately be swept away. They would not stand in the storm. What was Jesus' solution? What did Jesus tell them to do? Jesus told them, If you call me Lord, do as I say. Do as I say. I'm afraid churches today are filled with people not unlike the multitude we read about in this text. Many people call Jesus Lord when they have no intention 
or desire to obey Him. That's mockery. It's mockery. How is it different from the Roman soldiers who when they beat Jesus, they then clothed Him with a purple robe and put a crown of thorns on His head and said, Hail, King of the Jews. It's mockery. There are many people who gladly sit and listen to the words of Jesus, but who leave every week unchanged. No intention, no desire to obey. Don't be like that. Be like the wise man described in verse 48. Dig deeply into spiritual things. Labor hard in seeking the Lord, and don't stop until you find the rock, Jesus Christ, the only firm foundation upon which to build faith. Don't waste your time building a faith that looks fine on the outside but has no foundation. It's worthless. It won't last. The first storm that comes along will blow it down. We must build our faith on Jesus Christ. Call Him Lord. Recognize and submit to His authority. Turn from any other master and kneel before Jesus in faith and repentance. Call Him Lord. Then listen to His words. If you would know Jesus Christ, you must know His word. The Word of God is where the will of God is revealed for us. Spend time in personal study of the Word of God. Spend time sitting under faithful teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Dig deeply into the Word of God. Listen to the words of Jesus. And then obey. Obey. We're to think, speak, and act in obedience to the revealed will of God. Every area of our lives. We're to obey God in thought. We're to obey God in word. We're to obey God in deed. Jesus calls His disciples, His followers, to obedience. Now you may be listening to this and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You've never been born again. And I would warn you, take no comfort in merely hearing about Jesus. That will do you no good. That will not protect you in the day of judgment. That will do nothing to cleanse you of your sin. It's not enough to simply hear the words of Jesus. You must receive Him. Not as a good teacher, not as a historic figure, not as a friend, buddy, but as Lord. The way of salvation is not found simply in hearing about Jesus, but in looking to Him in faith and repentance. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And then as a disciple of Jesus Christ... You must obey Him and do the things that He said. Once again, I'm going to read verse 46. The words of Jesus. May we all hear them and heed them. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would be convicted. So we hear your word this morning. Lord, not just from the instruction that was in this passage that we looked at, but in this whole sermon that you preached, the high calling that you have put upon your disciples, a self-denying, sacrificial way we're supposed to live. Lord, may we not just simply nod our heads and say, oh, that's good. May we not be like those who would say, Lord, Lord, but who have no intention to obey. We pray that you would humble us and convict us, open our eyes, the areas of sin in our life that 
we become hardened to or blind to. And maybe we go forward committed to walking in obedience to your revealed will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.